It's time to check in with Rick Forchuk. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. We'll get right to it. We're starting with The Spy Who Dumped Me. Yes, Jill, this is billed as an action comedy. It's really a buddy movie with uh, Audrey, played by Mila Kunis, and Morgan, played by Kate McKinnon, and has elements of both genres, but overdoes one or the other from time to time, leaving us wondering if it's a laugher, a spy movie, or some kind of strange hybrid, where the two disciplines collided on a roadway and left everybody in a shambles. Now, Jill, that's not to say it's not worth seeing. There's enough here to keep us engaged, even though some of the funny scenes fall flat and some of the action scenes cease to be believable. Audrey has been dumped by Drew. He's played by Justin Thoreau, who's Jennifer Aniston's ex. There's something he did via text message, and she is inconsolable. Her best friend Morgan tries in many ways to help get her pal up and running, but it's been a year and things are not good. When Drew shows up back in Audrey's life, bullets start flying. The two women have already been picked up by the CIA for interrogation because Drew has been up to, well, something it seems. At least it looks like the CIA. Maybe it was really MI6 or maybe, well, that's where it gets muddy, but it matters little. Now, once Drew is back on scene and the fireworks begin, he's shot and apparently killed. Audrey and Morgan know from his dying words that there's something that he left with Audrey that everybody seems to want. And with his final breath, he tells them to go to Vienna to a specific restaurant and meet Vern. But trust no one. That's the setup, Joe. And it's everybody against everybody else with real spy stuff that includes vehicle chases through European streets, friends that could be villains and villains that could be friends, and a cast that includes Paul Reiser and Jane Curtin as Morgan's parents, and Gillian Anderson of The X-Files as the Bond movie equivalent of M. Now, although Kate McKinnon's character, Morgan, has far too much dialogue for anybody to properly digest, her physical comedy is every bit as good as, well, Lucille Ball or Jerry Lewis in the old days, and in more current times, maybe Melissa McCarthy. You won't take much of it seriously, but if you work around the dreadful F-bomb-laden language, you will get the guts of what is a movie with some fun in spots. That's certainly enough to make it worth seeing. The rating is 14A, probably leans more towards an 18A rating. That's The Spy Who Dumped Me, Joe. All right, and a much different film, Disney's Christopher Robin. Yeah, so question for you, Jill, before we start with this. Were you or are you a Winnie the Pooh fan ever? I like Winnie the Pooh. I read the books when I was a kid. Okay, well, I think you'd like this then. It's Disney's Christopher Robin, and I struggled with the movie prior to seeing it, wondering, among other things, why it had a G rating in Canada, but had been labeled PG in the U.S. And once into the first ten minutes or so, I wondered who the audience was supposed to be. Now, shortly after that, an entire family of five got up and left the theater. Now, once well into the story, that all became clear, I think. Uh, Christopher Robin is still a young boy in the early pre-opening credits minutes of the film. He's saying goodbye to his pals in the Hundred Acre Wood as he's being sent off to boarding school. He promises Pooh that he will never forget him. After the credits, we flash forward. Here, Christopher Robin, played by Ewan McGregor, is a British soldier in World War II. Then he returns home. He's married to Evelyn, played by Haley Atwell. They have a daughter named Madeline, and Christopher has gone to work for the Winslow Luggage Company as head of the efficiency department. Bogged down in corporate budget problems, he drifts away from his family as he struggles to make spending cuts to keep the company afloat, taking up every waking moment. 
He had promised Evelyn and Madeline that he would take them to their country cottage for the weekend, but the boss at Winslow Luggage has decreed that everybody will work the weekend to find ways to save money or the company may perish. Well, the family reluctantly goes off without him. Uh, He is thrust into the weekend, ridden with fiscal challenges. And at the same time, in the Hundred Acre Wood, Pooh has learned that everybody seems to have gone missing. Piglet, Eeyore, Kanga, and Baby Roo, everybody. On his search, leaving the wood behind, he encounters the now-grown Christopher Robin on this very bad day. Long story short, the job of Pooh and his pals is to get Christopher Robin back in touch with himself, save the company, and save the family. There are elements of many Pooh stories at play here. Why I think the family that left the theater early on departed is that I presume that they were expecting an animated feature, a cartoon. Well, this one is all live action, with the stuffed animals somewhat animated, but still looking like, well, stuffed animals. The scenes of post-war London, particularly the train stations, are excellent, and the story, once it's rolling, is sensitive and touching. And that's why the PG rating, I think, there's some sad moments and some frightening moments. Um, This is a movie, I believe, Jill, for baby boomers and maybe their kids, Uh, but for the generation that needs Pixar animation to survive, it's a long, slow pull indeed. I did like it a great deal. I thought it paid appropriate respect to what came before, and I can recommend it to anybody who's come through a blustery day fully intact. PG rating for Christopher Robin, Jill. All right, sounds like an interesting one. Uh, One more, The Darkest Minds. Yeah, even though this is a smart sci-fi thriller, it's just full of been-there-done-that scenes and concepts that are oh-so-television. Uh, We've seen this idea so often. Kids have superpowers, so they are a threat to the government that wants to oppress them and treat them as outcasts. With its low budget and its basis in the young adult trilogy of books by Alexandra Bracken, it speaks well to a young audience not yet jaded by years of X-Men, mutants, and shapeshifters. It's a dystopian near future in which a mysterious virus, it's always a virus, Jill, has decimated 90% of the population under the age of 18. And those who remain have powers that are a threat to the ruling class. Not good for that ruling class when the kids begin to organize and strike out on their own. There are some good action scenes, some scenes that will be too frightening for younger viewers. Uh, The ratings here is 14A, and that's about right. Uh, And a real sense of deja vu is the internment camps of the children and the teens look an awful lot like the immigrant children separated from their parents in Donald Trump's current America. Mandy Moore's Kate, one of the few adults who sympathizes with a lot of the teens, as I said, a 14A rating for The Darkest Minds, probably one to watch for when it comes to Netflix or DVD, Joe. All right. Uh, speaking of Netflix, too, we've uh, got a couple minutes left. We'll go through what's happening on the streaming devices. Yeah, Suicide Squad, which was just huge at the box office worldwide as a Marvel Comics feature uh, that stars Viola Davis and a whole bunch of other people. The problem with this movie is that it tries to acquaint us with too many characters too quickly. Highlight of the bunch is Margot Robbie as Hardy Queen, the baddest of the bad girls. Also includes the Joker, played by Jared Leto, Panda Man, played by James McGowan. And once the action picks up, it's just nonstop with lots of stuff blowing up. 14A rating for that one, Joe. All right, and Daddy's Home too. Yeah, if you like Will Ferrell and his one-dimensional man-child characters, and if you like the setup from the first Daddy's Home movie from 2015, and if you like the comedic goings-on around the challenges of a blended family, well, you'll be fine with this 
sequel that adds one more element, and that is two extra dads. I personally don't like Will Ferrell's characters and most of what he does. He's the producer here, too, by the way. It's a comedy with some funny bits, so the kids' performances are just fine. Rating us PG-2. I'm sorry, PG for Daddy's Home 2. <laughs> All right. And on Crave, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, this is an interesting one. It's a mini-series based on the movie, which was based on the stage play, which was based on the novel. And the story here has intrigue and tension as a group of schoolgirls in Australia around 1900 disappear mysteriously on Valentine's Day. With the permission of their governess, the girls climb the rocks above the picnic site, find a cave, and one by one they slip into a trance-like state and are enticed or directed into the most dangerous parts of the cave. It is very scary stuff. Good performances by the girls. 14A rating. That's Picnic at Hanging Rock on Crave. And uh, one mention on television, and this is uh, if you are a country music fan. If you are indeed, Jill, the iHeart Country Music Festival. If you're a fan of big hats and big hair, you'll want to check out this country extravaganza that features performances by Keith Urban, Luke Bryan, Sugarland, Dustin Lynch, and many others. Lots of music, lots of backstage interviews, too. That's tonight on Fox, Jill. All right, sounds good. On that note, we will talk to you next weekend. You bet. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, you might have heard this story in the news this past week. A Quebec labor tribunal has sided with an employer who refused a woman's request to work from home on the day her cat died. Chantelle Dumay filed a complaint alleging she was forced to leave her job back in 2015 due to various incidents of alleged psychological harassment. She told the Canadian press one example was when she wasn't paid after staying home from the office one day after the sudden death of her cat, Juliette. Dumay told her employer she was too upset to come to work after finding her cat dead, but said that she still stayed at home and made calls from home. There are court documents that state the Montreal area resident left her job a short time later, and this was soon after she learned that she had not been paid for the day in question. The tribunal ruled there is nothing in Quebec's labor laws that permit a salaried employee to miss work following the death of a pet. So joining us now to talk a bit more about this is uh, Stephen Gilman, an associate at Sanfaru Tamarkin LLP. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, what is your take on this story? It's a bit of an odd one, but certainly a conversation starter about the idea of uh, working from home or missing work due to the death of a pet. Well, this one's been getting a, a lot of airplay, and it's a, it's a fairly unique case. Uh, maybe start from the point that our laws in British Columbia are... are not the same as Quebec, but there's, it's the same in the sense that there are no protections for bereavement leave uh, if your cat, dog, or iguana passes away. What if you call in sick? What if your, your reasoning is, look, my pet just died, I'm heartbroken, I'm not able to work. It, it, does it fall under the umbrella of taking a sick day? Well, here's the confusing part about this case. I mean, listen, no one's going to dispute that uh, losing an animal, especially the attachment that we have to our animals, uh, would not be a tra- traumatic experience. Um, you know, I, I would think the way to go would be to call in and say, listen, I'm, I'm you know, feeling stressed out under the weather uh, and taking a sick day because those are sick days are statutorily protected. And that's what struck me in this case was, was it because did it get kind of muddied because she said she didn't take the day off? She said that she was working from home. Well, this, I mean, this is a bizarre case in all respects. You'd think if, if you're an employer, an employee calls in and says, listen, I've had this traumatic experience, whether it's a, a dog passing away, favorite 
sports team losing, who knows? You don't want that person in the workplace for the day anyway. They're not going to be focused or productive. This, this all seems to have gone a little bit farther than you'd ever hoped, this three-year experience at the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. Exactly. And even reading the details of this case and such, it does seem like there's, there's, there was likely more going on in this workplace than just the, the death of the cat and the one day of unpaid. It seems like there were more issues that led to her leaving her job. But I think it did, it does strike with people or it does start those conversations because anybody that has a pet, I think, can imagine what it would be like and, and what it would be like if, if your pet died suddenly and you were supposed to go to work. Yeah, I mean, listen, my, my advice to anyone who loses a pet and is having a traumatic experience as a result, which is understandable, is call in and take a sick day. And if you're an employer on the other side, uh, I think it's best to give that employee the day off. Um, you know, it's, But at the end of the day, it's not protected under the BC Employment Standards Act or, I guess, uh, corresponding Quebec legislation. Um you know, if, if if your dog or cat dies, there's there's not an automatic right to bereavement. But a sick day in the circumstances, I think that makes sense. Does it count, though? Could an employer be a stickler in this saying, but you're not sick, therefore you can't take a sick day? Yeah, they could. And, and you know, and, and then it would be up to, you know, disciplining the employee if they felt it to be necessary. I'm not sure I know too many employers that would take that route. Um, it'd be easier just to say, take the day off. Uh, get your head around this one and come back in. Um, but but I suppose if uh, someone called in and said, I'm taking a day off because my, my animal has passed away, th- that wouldn't fly. Whereas if they had called in, and this is the, the my, minutia to it, if they call in and say, um, you know, my pet's died and I'm feeling very sick as a result, that would be okay. So, you know, this is a very confusing case, but it raises an interesting story, I guess. We see all sorts of stuff that, the BC human rights tribunal and across human rights tribunals across the country. Uh, does it matter? Do you think what what type of employment it is, and and whether or not the person can be replaced for the day, or or what it if it's leaving your employer in the lurch? Yeah, I mean, size of employer does matter when it comes to accommodation for an illness. Um, but but you know, ultimately one <clears throat> one day off, whether you're a two-person shop or, or a large multinational, it's, it, it probably won't matter in this context. It matters when it comes to accommodation. Right. Uh, do you think cases like this, uh, it, it does seem, and again, I'm sure there was more going on in this particular case out of Quebec. Uh, is this what the, the human rights, the tribunals and such, is this what they're there for? <laughs> you know what? We, you find all sorts of, of interesting and unique cases coming out of uh, human rights tribunals across the country. Um, I mean, obviously, the tribunal decided that that this wasn't something that was to be protected. But yeah, I, I mean, you see a lot of this kind of these kind of cases, these unique cases. Uh, it's not what it's there for. Obviously, this was not a successful complaint. But I mean, if you feel your human rights have been impacted, that's the spot to go. And I suppose too that there's the chance it can go to uh, other uh, other cases or other fights. In that I'm I'm recalling uh, several years ago there was a woman who was fighting for paid leave when she was getting I think she was getting a puppy, and the idea being it was like having a newborn child and there should be paid leave for that as well. It seems like like people do, and I get it. Pets, I have pets. They are part of the family, uh, but they are pets. They aren't people. 
Yeah, I mean, one only needs to go to one of the many dog parks around Vancouver to see the emphasis that individuals place on their pets and how they've made them like children. Um, but that it begs a question, should there be a legislative change? I don't think there will be. Uh, but, but right now, it's currently constructed, no paid leave, no bereavement time. Um, you know, the, the BC Employment Standards Act really only protects uh, when a relative, uh, a child, a spouse dies. And do you think, is it something that should be discussed? Like you said, there's, it's not as though it's, it's imminent, there's going to be a legislative change. Is it something that should be discussed? Well, you know, maybe. Uh, and, and I don't ever see <clears throat> our legislature uh, in B.C., tackling or taking on this issue. Um, I, I mean, never say never, but I, I don't see this as, as being something that ever gets passed in the legislation. And then it, where do we draw the line, right? Is it a dog, a cat, an iguana, but not the goldfish? I mean, <laughs> where do we go from there? Yeah, good question. Uh, do you think this, at least uh, this case out of Quebec, I mean, is it g- getting people talking or thinking about it? Because I think you made a very interesting point in that it's how you approach it. If you call in and say, I'm taking the day, your employer might not be all that uh, sympathetic to you. But if you call in and make the case, look, I'm, I'm heartbroken, I need to take a sick day, hopefully you would get some compassion from your employer. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> well, maybe maybe not from a legal perspective, but employers are taking notice. So uh, I, I'm aware of a couple employers, I believe Shoppers Drug Mart, but, but don't hold me to that one, is one of them that will provide bereavement leave or, or give special benefits as it relates to pet care. Um, there, there's a large uh, U.S. hotel chain that, that does that, and they look at it more as a, a way to retain employees who really care about their pets, saying, you know, we're one of the best employers for pet owners. Um, so employers are taking notice. I mean, I don't think our legislature will take notice and put any sort of law into action, but... Employers, from a retention perspective, uh, and to attract new employees, are starting to look at this. So, it may not raise the issue legally, but it's certainly something that that employers are now taking notice of. And that almost seems like that's the better arena, in that an employer now knows that if I want to retain workers, if I want to make this an attractive place to work, this is what we can do. But you don't, maybe, don't necessarily need a law stating that an employer has to do that. Yeah, I did, I, again, I, I don't. Uh, I don't see a law coming into place. There, there's a fine line to be drawn. I mean, with the goldfish versus the cat example, I mean, um, you know, certainly at the end of a long weekend, there might be a few goldfish passing away if it became law. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And not to make light of it, because again, it's it's a very sad thing, but uh, but uh, yeah, how far do you push it, right? It, exactly the case. And, and not making light of, 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 of a passing of a, a loved animal, but... Uh, yeah, it's just where do we draw the line? How do you fit this into the tight confines of the BC Employment Standards Act? I, I, I just don't see it happening. All right. Well, it is certainly one, that, as you said, that's generating a lot of conversation. Uh, Stephen, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for being with us this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more about some numbers that have been released, and this has to do with the ongoing opioid crisis in British Columbia. Let's bring in Travis Lupic. He's a journalist based in Vancouver. He's been on the program before talking about his book, Fighting for Space, how a group of drug users transformed one city's struggle with addiction. He's also a columnist with the Georgia Strait. Travis, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you wrote about this uh, just a couple of days ago in the Georgia Strait. Uh, talk a bit about the latest numbers that have been released and what you wrote about. 
Yeah, every month, the BC Coroner Service gives us a monthly statistical update um, on illicit drug overdose deaths. And every month, uh, for about 20 months now, um, the statistics show that our opioid epidemic has plateaued. In the winter of 2016, there was a really sharp spike. Um, that was when a dangerous synthetic opiate called carfentanil, even more dangerous than the better known uh, fentanyl, arrived. Carfentanil arrived in, in the winter of 2016. Our epidemic spiked, and ever since then, for 20 months now, deaths in British Columbia um, as a result of illicit drugs have remained above an average of 100 every single month. So the new statistics. The new statistics show that our epidemic has not spiked, it's plateaued. It's created this nightmare where 100 is the new normal. And, and you also point to March of this year as the worst month, because, which I think might come as a surprise to people when you talk about that, the, the December or the winter of 2016. I think people might uh, think or assume that that was the worst month. Right. For a very long time, um, the the worst month for overdose death to ever have occurred in British Columbia was December 2016. That's when we had 161 fatal overdoses. Uh, for reference, uh, before fentanyl arrived, um, a quote-unquote normal number of fatal overdoses in British Columbia was about 20 to 30 a month. Now we're at an average of over 100, and in the winter of 2016, we hit um, 161. Oh, that's what we thought we had. The statistics change every month um, as new autopsies come back, as new results come back from the lab. So monthly statistics actually change for several years even. So what we thought was the worst month ever, December 2016, when 161 people died, um, was actually just surpassed, we just learned, by March 2018. Now we know it was actually 160 people who died in 2016 and 162 people who died in March 2018. That's significant because we thought for so for more than two years now that the very worst month of this crisis to have ever occurred was in December 2016, a couple of years in the past. Now we know it was actually just a few months ago, March 2018. So if you thought that we were a couple of years behind the worst of this crisis, uh, we now know we, we were wrong. Um, the, the very worst period of this crisis happened just a few months ago, and in many ways is still ongoing today. And what about the attention that's being paid to this? I know there was a news release that was put out on August 3rd. Uh, you quoted from that in the piece that you wrote for the Georgia Strait. It doesn't seem like it's getting the same amount of attention it was getting, say, even going back to 2016 or even going back a few months. Yeah, I mean, I actually know it's not getting the same attention because, like most newsrooms um, in Vancouver or most newsrooms in North America, um, we got this little thing called Chartbeat in the Georgia Straits newsroom that shows us, you know, how many users are on this article, how many users are on that article. When we published a, a story about fentanyl in the winter of 2016, it, it shot to the top of of, um, of our website for traffic. Um, people were really paying attention as the, the number of deaths skyrocketed. Now, even though the number of deaths has not decreased in any way or are absolutely higher than ever, um, we're not seeing those same page views, which means people are not paying attention to the crisis like they once were. Um, so the attention is going down, but deaths are not. 
Do you think there's a, enough of a conversation then? It's one thing to put out a news release for the city to put out a release saying this is continuing to kill our loved ones and to devastate families. It's one thing to do that. But what about uh, another measure, whether it's treatment, whether it's trying to help people, whether it's trying to arrest and go after the people who are peddling the poison that is killing people? Well, we got to decide um, what we're okay with. Um, for more than a decade, 20 to 30 overdose deaths a month, for lack of a better word, was normal. Okay, so we're going to accept 20 to 30 fatal overdoses every month across British Columbia. Now, for 20 months, we've seen over 100. So have we accepted that? Is, is quadruple what was, what was once normal? Now the new normal is more than 100 deaths every month the new normal. If we don't accept that, then we really need to talk about uh, different sorts of actions. Um, we've tried enforcement. We've tried enforcement uh, for 100 years. Um, I think most politicians, even on the, the right of the political spectrum, uh, admit that it's failed. Um, we need to do much more with, with treatment. Um, BC's response to, to the fentanyl crisis has largely consisted of harm reduction, things like injection sites, um, things like fentanyl test strips. We need to continue doing that. But we, we have not ramped up treatment in, in the way that this sort of crisis needs. Um, the city's doing a good job advocating for that, I think. These are largely um, provincial and federal matters, and I don't think that we've seen enough from those levels of government yet. Oh, and, and you raise a, an interesting point in that when we do get these numbers and when they are reported, uh, one of the lines in the stories is often that none of the fatalities took place in supervised sites. And the, mm. the, the point there being this is happening in people's homes, this is happening when people are alone. Uh, do you think it's important to make that distinction? Yeah, where harm reductions are deployed, you know, where supervised injection sites are available... Um, fatal overdoses are not happening. Um, BC has more than 15 of these sites now, and there has never been a death in any of them. So, so they work where they're available. But it's difficult to get people to use supervised injection sites in places where populations are lower, um, in places where populations are more conservative, in the suburbs. The vast majority of fatal overdoses in BC now are happening in people's bedrooms where they're alone. And it's really tough to get harm reduction measures into someone's bedroom. We need to we need to get people out of their bedrooms. We need to get people out of the shadows. We need to remove stigma, get people talking about addiction, get people creating creating an environment where people feel comfortable asking for help. And, and do you think part of it? And we talked about this. Uh, we were talking about this on the show last weekend. Is the is the goal? to get people to a place where, because there's always this debate on providing clean opioids or providing for, for people to have access to that. And is, is the end goal that somebody continues using but uses clean drugs so they're not going to die? Or is the end goal to get somebody to the point to get treatment and the goal is that they are not using drugs at some point? Yeah, well, first let me say it's actually great that BC is having that debate over clean opiates because most jurisdictions in North America will not even have the discussion. So at least BC is talking about it. Um, what's the end goal? Uh, we don't want, the end goal is not creating an environment where everybody feels okay using opiates supplied by the government. But if people are going to get into treatment, we have to keep them alive long enough to get into treatment. And BC's drug supply is now so hopelessly polluted with fentanyl and carfentanyl that 
so many people who maybe just a couple of years from now could be ready for treatment are not living long enough to get there. One way we can help them live long enough is end the war on drugs, remove the threat because dangerous supply of street drugs contaminated with fentanyl, and give people a clean and regulated supply via the country's healthcare system. And alongside that supply of clean opiates, absolutely just pour money into the treatment system. Take every dollar that we're giving to police to run users down alleys, give all that money to the healthcare system, and finally create a real mental health and treatment system in Canada. What about the idea, though? Does does that not let the people who are peddling this uh, let them get away with it? And then and I get that if somebody's now getting a clean supply, they're not going to be purchasing from a dealer. But if but if these people were were out shooting people, they would get arrested for murder. And what they're doing is is murder in in a way in that they are they are peddling something that kills people. The high level dealers, perhaps, and I don't think anybody's advocating that we stop going over after the high level dealers. But the low-level dealers, you know, the guys that you, you see on the corner of Hastings when you're, you're driving across town in Vancouver, the, the vast majority of them don't know that fentanyl is in the drugs they're selling. Maybe at this point they assume, but they, they have no, you know, they, don't, they have no certainty over it, and they definitely have no control over it. And many of them are, are addicts themselves, simply often working only for drugs, not money, um, feeding their own addiction. Um, so alongside a, a clean supply of government drug, uh, drugs supplied by the government and alongside uh, a more effective treatment system, we would we would continue with enforcement against high-level dealers, but I'm not sure how long they would be in business for after we legalized and regulated supply. I think if we did bring opiate supply under government regulation, uh, pretty quickly we'd actually stamp out that illegal market simply because they could not compete. All right. Uh, but they must know. I, I get what you're saying, that a lot, uh, the, the people, the low-level dealers, uh, many of them are, are struggling with addiction themselves. But I think it wasn't the number that almost every dose out there has fentanyl in it. I mean, people who are peddling this stuff know that there's fe- fentanyl in it. Uh, uh, yeah, the new numbers that came out last week are um, more than 90% of products sold as heroin now contain fentanyl in Vancouver. So yes, at this, at this point... Um, everybody does know fentanyl is in what you're doing. The problem is we have a, a large, a, you know, a, a certain percentage of the population who's addicted to opiates. It's not that they're addicted to heroin, it's that they're addicted to opiates. So you need something to send off opiate withdrawal. And since there's no more heroin left, really all, all these people have is fentanyl. It's, it's not by choice. Um, it's, you know, it's a situation that's actually worse for them than anybody else. All right. Well, Travis, we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but appreciate you coming back on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.